0: Michael Pollan is the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals, In Defense of Food, and Eater's Manifesto, Food Rules, and Eater's Guide. His new book is Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Oh, good to be here. This book is really fascinating, and one of the things that interested me most about this book was your inspiration for writing it. We we live in a, a culture that's obsessed with food but spend more time watching food being cooked than actually cooking it ourselves. Yeah,
1: I call that the cooking paradox. And we do, we're fetishizing uh, food, we're fetishizing cooking, we watch it on television, we go to restaurants with open kitchens so you can see it happening. But we're doing it less and less, and this struck me as a as a weird paradox about our ourselves and 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 was one of the inspirations for doing the book was trying to unpack that. But I realized at a certain point that cooking was different than other things we've stopped doing. Um you know we've outsourced sewing our clothing to other people and not look back or fixing our fixing our cars. We don't watch TV shows about that. Cooking's different, and I think part of it is that so many of us, most of us have very powerful memories as children of being in the kitchen where a, another human being dear to us, usually our mothers, but not always, uh, was cooking. And we would watch those transformations unfold. And they are miraculous very often. And there was the the, the, the reception of this beautiful gift from somebody you love of food that had been cooked for you. And I think that that's a memory most of us have somewhere. and um, And so the cooking is something we have you know, is is kind of lodged in our memories, is imprinted on us. There's also the fact that as a species, it turns out, we have a deep um you know, a deep collective memory of cooking as being, I think, central to our identity as human beings. It really is what separates us from the animals. They don't cook. With <laughs> with one exception we can get to later. But um
0: That's the Wangham argument.
1: That's right. Richard Wrangham, uh the cooking hypothesis. And uh he's a character in the book, someone I spent a lot of time with and mm-hmm. reading, and uh, and he hypothesizes that the, the turning point in our evolution came at the moment when we controlled fire and with fire were able to, was able to cook uh, our food. When we did this, we suddenly had um, this, this bonus of nutrients and energy that other animals didn't have. Because when you cook food, it takes a lot less energy to digest it. It takes a lot less energy to chew it not to mention you've probably detoxified it in some ways, and suddenly our brains had a new source of energy that allowed our brains to get a lot bigger and our guts to shrink because other animals our size have smaller brains and much larger digestive apparatus to process all that raw plant material that uh, that they're eating. So it is cooking that made us human, and cooking also gave us the meal because when you start cooking with fire, you're no longer eating on your own, you know, on the run, which is what the hunter-gatherer has the freedom to do. You don't have to sit down around a meal if you're hunting and gathering. But as soon as you make a fire, you do. It's a cooperative, cooking is a cooperative uh, venture by, by definition. Someone has to tend the fire, keep it going while someone else is hunting or preparing the food to be, to be cooked. And then you need to figure out a way to share it. And the need to share it leads to rules how to take turns, how to divide, um, who's in charge, and how to? And also how to uh, delay gratification. Because the food's there. You could eat it right now, but it's going to be better if you wait an hour or two hours or three hours. And that kind of uh, governing of our worst instincts happens around the cook fire. And that
0: becomes a civilization.
1: Yeah, because you need conversation to do that. You need uh-huh. rules to do that. And that all happens in that meal. And the, and the meal is a very important institute, uh, institution of our, of our species. And, and it's sad to watch it in decline, which it is. I mean, you know, we're, with the decline in cooking, we're also eating together less. And you see a rise in what the Department of Agriculture calls secondary eating. This is a term I'd never seen before. And uh, secondary eating is eating while you're doing other things. And we now spend, you know, while you're um, in the car, while you're working at your, at your desk, while you're watching TV, anything except face-to-face with somebody else. And, um, and that's up to 78 minutes a day. This was a trivial number a few decades ago. And at the same time, primary eating, which is the USDA's term for the institution you know as the meal, has gone down. And that is down to 67 minutes a day. So we're spending more time in secondary eating, which is largely snacking on, on our own, and less time in meals. And I think that's a tremendous loss from a social point of view, and certainly from a health point of view, because the kind of food you eat when you're doing secondary eating tends to be crap. I mean, you know, it's 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 processed food, it's convenience food, it's cereal bars. I mean, some people are probably eating baby carrots, you know, great. But on balance, it's corporate cooked, Food high in salt, fat, and sugar, and various additives. And
0: that man with a burrito in his hand in a car is more dangerous than a man with a <laughs> f-
1: cell phone to his ear. <laughs> probably there is there there is the distraction. Although I, I have to say, texting is probably more dangerous than, than eating. Burritos are not a good food for the car. I have to tell you.
0: You mentioned Mr. Rangham as a character, and that reminds me that for all of the interesting facts you give us and all the stuff you talk about in this book, it is a book. And it's a beautifully architected <laughs> book, and that's easy to forget when you're caught up in all of the stuff that you're telling us. And I love the way that this book is constructed and written. It's the world's longest cookbook in that it has the most number of pages for per recipe.
1: <laughs> yeah, there are only four recipes. And, and and I hasten to tell your listeners that this is not a cookbook in that it doesn't have a bunch of 20-minute recipes. Uh, it really just has four kind of elemental recipes for four different transformations. And the only reason the recipes are there is I, I felt as people... Watched me learn how to master baking a loaf of bread or making pickles that they would want to know how I did it, and I'd get a lot of email asking for the recipes, so I figured I'd include them in an appendix they're they're daunting recipes though I mean some of them you know take hours and hours and hours and days, and you know if you don't make them, it won't break my heart because as you say, this is first a book I mean my first interest as uh, as a writer is to delight and instruct and not to argue a case to guilt you into cooking more or even to give you you know how-to information even though there's some of it it's it's a how to think about it more than a how to do it kind of book or a why to rather than a how to and as a writer, my first goal is, I mean, I know I'm identified now as an advocate on, on many issues having to do with food, and that's fine, and I do a lot of political work on food, but I'm, I'm first and foremost a writer and a storyteller, and I I love telling the story of what I'm learning about, and especially when it's about these ordinary things that surround us, you know, onions, and why do they fight back when we, when we do that, and, and how does a cheese go from milk to this thing and get these colors and weird smells, and what's going on? Uh, biologically? Um, and why do people like stinky cheeses? And, you know, I ask really kind of obvious questions about things all right around us, the furniture of our lives. And going on quests to, to get the answers to those questions really is what turns me on. That struck me that this
0: is a book that might be taken as prescriptive, but it's really deeply, deeply descriptive. And yeah. I, I thought this was what struck me. This is a kind of funny to do, an investigative journalistic memoir
1: of your own life. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way it is. Um, you know, I, as I often do, I put myself in this book as kind of an inquiring observer or a delegated inquirer for the reader. And and I do that because uh, I feel that the narrative that's available to all of us is, as writers is the narrative of our education, of our learning how to do something or why something is the way it is. And this is a more personal book than others I've written, I think, or at least that's what I hear from people. And there's a little bit more about my family and, and life at home, because cooking is about a very intimate space, you know, domestic space, uh, as opposed to going out and writing about agriculture and policy and things like that. But I'm in it, you know, it's not a confessional book. It's really just kind of I'm the, I'm the hero or anti-hero who's having these adventures. And the real heroes of the book are my teachers. And in, you know, the book is divided into these four elemental transformations uh, that I think most cooking can be divided into, regardless of the cuisine or the culture. So, in each case, I found at least one person, and sometimes several, who were brilliant artisans of whether it's cooking with fire, or cooking in pots with liquid, or baking, or uh, pickling, and cheese making, and brewing. And apprentice myself to those people to learn whatever I could to learn the secrets of how they did it so well, and I was fortunate in my teachers because they were remarkably generous, and they were fantastic characters. I mean, these are you know these these people are just kind of vivid and passionate and obsessive, um, and so I, you get a lot of energy from them. I thought I really enjoyed the way the book was
0: constructed with these four elements. It does give us the Book a nice structure that we can really latch on to to understand the basic concepts, uh, the uh, as it were, platonic concepts of yeah. cooking. These are the four platonic bases of, of cooking, and then you populate those with these great American characters. I yeah. just absolutely loved it. So, let's talk about fire. Yeah, well,
1: that's the first and the mm-hmm. oldest, and as Rangham, you know, tells us, this is. This is the, 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 the turning point, the watershed moment in our evolution is, is acquiring the power of fire to, to transform um, meat and, and not just meat but but uh, vegetables and plant plant foods as well. And the history of that is very interesting, as I suggested, It's it's a very rule-based kind of cooking, you know, especially when you're cooking meat. For most of history, people understood that this was a big deal, and you were killing animals. They were hard to kill. You had mixed feelings about killing them. And eating them was a profound engagement with other people, with nature, and with God. And so usually, um, the eating of meat was a a ritual and presided over by a very prominent person in the community, often a priest. and, And in many cultures, the identity of the priest, the cook, and the butcher were the same, same person. Same word in Greek, is it? Magieros, yeah. yes, which has magic at its base. I mean, so this is a kind of a key person. It's only in our own time that we can eat meat in a thoughtless, careless way. I mean, really, it just was too rare and too special for most of history, and and we have we have such a long, abstract, opaque food chain that we can put aside what's really going on. But there are still corners of our culture where the the preparing of meat over a fire is still a really big deal, and the biggest. Is, uh, is in southern barbecue. So I decided in learning about cooking meat over a fire, this, this, this first transformation, to go to eastern North Carolina. And that's where, you know, and the culture of barbecue is highly balkanized, right, throughout the South. Every state, every portion of every state, you find a slightly different style and a different set of rules. So for example, if you're West of uh, Lexington in North Carolina, you're cooking whole. Ho- you're cooking pork shoulders uh, with a tomato-based sauce, but you go east of that line, and barbecue means whole hog over a wood fire, no sauce, just a little seasoning, and. And then you go to Tennessee and it's ribs and you go to Texas and it's brisket and sausage. And, and each each little republic of barbecue claims that it's the true and authentic and only legitimate kind. And looks down on the others and will say things like, well, that's that's all good, but it's not barbecue. So I chose one, but that I decided was the most... Unreconstructed, you know, the most uh, elemental. And that was eastern North Carolina, whole hog barbecue, which is a beautiful, remarkably simple kind of cooking. I mean, it really is. The recipe is pig, wood fire, thyme, and a little bit of salt. That's it. And some apple cider vinegar, maybe. And I apprenticed myself to a man down there named Ed Mitchell. He's
0: He's such a great character.
1: He's a wonderful guy. He's a, you know, big, black, Bear of a man with a with a white beard and wearing overalls and a hat all the time, a baseball hat all the time, and he's uh, he's very gentle, and has a has a kind of profound sense of his role in a in a history, which is the history of barbecue in North Carolina, which is very closely tied to um, the culture of tobacco, actually. Barbecue really begins in, in this history. I mean, it, it's brought to America from the Caribbean with the slave trade. Caribbean Indians would dig holes and, and slow-cook animals over um, a grate of uh, wood sticks uh, very slowly, and they called it barbacoa, it, although even that may be a corruption, but that's, that's the word that, that the slaves brought with them. And they picked up the hot pepper there, which is often a, an element in barbecue, uh, in barbecue sauce. Um, But in America, it became something you did when you brought in the tobacco into the uh, barns. You had these giant tobacco drying sheds, basically, and they had slats between every every board so air would pass through. And after you pulled or hung up the big leaves of tobacco, you wanted to dry them as quickly as possible so you'd preserve the the color and the quality. And uh, you did this by building a wood fire and kind of smoking the room and heating it. This produced an awful lot of wood cinders of, 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 of uh you know charcoal and coals. And so you would shovel these out constantly as you were feeding the fire. And people thought, well, we have all this burning cinders, let's let's do a animal, let's do a pig. And pigs were very common in the South. They had been introduced by the first explorers, actually Spanish explorers, and they were running wild. And uh so you would you would capture a pig and cook it slowly in a pit over a wood fire. And you were hanging around anyway, so you had the hours to do it. And it was a, a very, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia for this, for tobacco culture in the South. I mean, those of us further west or north, you know, look down on tobacco culture. But it was, it was a beautiful part of Southern culture, even though it was a you know toxic product. And it was a time when black and white worked together, because you had to bring in the tobacco all at once. It was all hands on deck. And it was the only time that blacks and whites would eat together, basically, in a, in a public venue. Ed Mitchell says at one point he served in Vietnam. He said the only two things that in my life that have transcended race are um, are barbecue in Vietnam and the Army, <laughs> uh, and which is I thought very interesting. And uh, so we did a couple barbecues together, uh, two in Wilson, North Carolina, where, which is his hometown, and one up in New York City where he was he was doing barbecue at a big barbecue festival they have every June, and uh, you know he kind of let me get right into it, and um, uh, it's. It's not complicated. I mean, the big secret of barbecue is there's no secret of barbecue. <laughs> it's just, and there's a lot of self-dramatizing guys involved, as is always the case every time a grill is, is, is lit up. Men have been very good at making this seem really hard for a very long time, and they're continuing to do that. Um, but you have to be patient, and you have to know how to talk for the hours that you're spending doing it. And then at the end, when you're doing the the this this style barbecue, you you have to chop up a whole pig, and that's a job. And um, and I learned how to do that, basically taking all the meat off the pig. Now it's cooked so long that it just the meat falls off, but there is various bones and cartilage you have to remove, and then you chop it with two heavy cleavers on a big cutting board. And you're basically mixing all the different cuts, so that the really juicy, fatty cuts, like the belly, get mixed with the uh, drier cuts, like the ham or the tenderloin, and the result is this wonderful texture of pulled pork. And then, but the, the coup de grace is you um, you crisp the skin over a fire by itself because it's still kind of rubbery when the when the meat is done, and as you heat this, which takes some doing, because it's got a layer of fat on it, it, it can ignite very easily. It's not something you want to do indoors. At a certain moment, the skin will turn to glass. It'll just get crisp. And at that moment, you let it cool for a little bit, and then break it up into shards with, the, with your cleavers, and mix that into the pork. And that's kind of the, if there's a secret ingredient to Eastern North Carolina barbecue, it's those shards of cracklin. And cracklin is, a, is an amazing substance. <laughs> Bacon gives you some idea of what cracklin is, but only an idea. It's even better than bacon. And uh, but having those kind of crispy shards mixed into this sandwich, just, just makes it very special. There's a lot going on in this sandwich.
0: That's a two seventy five sandwich too.
1: That's the amazing thing. Um, it's a very democratic food barbecue. Um, uh, although I must say that the, when you can charge two seventy five for it, which is less than a Big Mac in the, in the towns where that's what the price is, you're using. Commodity pork. I mean, you're not using the best pork. This isn't sustainable pork. To do that, you have to charge more than two seventy five. And and Ed Mitchell does do that. He uses really uh, good quality, sustainably raised pork from small farms and small slaughterhouses. The average barbecue uh, restaurant in the South is is using commodity meat and can and they really can't afford to do anything else. Which to me is, you know, is a problem. I mean, I, you know, I try to avoid eating that kind of meat. Although I have to say that after 20 hours of cooking, the worst pork is still pretty amazing.
0: <laughs> Another lengthy dish comes when you start to cook with water. And here you get into something that I think is really interesting. It is the appeal of the drudgery in the kitchen. Mm. Uh, because I, I really like sitting in the kitchen. I, when I start to make something, I'm gonna if I'm gonna eat at like eight o'clock, which I don't usually eat, I might start putting the the utensils out that I'm gonna cook with at four. Because mm-hmm. I'm really lazy and I want to like work have about, everything ready. Yeah, the I mise en work, place. Yeah, I just like well put out a little bit. You know, put out my forks and knives or my bowls, I'm going to mix it through, or whatever, and then it makes the whole task a lot easier. So you're not like in this big flurry. And so you talk about the, uh, uh, this in terms of chopping the onions and also the problems with onions.
1: Well, you know, I, like a lot of people, was, I mean, I cooked before I embarked on this journey, but without a lot of conviction uh, or thought or patience. I was a very impatient cook. And I felt like many of us do, you know, that there's some. there was always something better I should be doing with my time than cooking. I, I could be answering email. I could be getting exercise. I could be, you know, I don't know, um, getting some work done, reading a book, reading the paper. And I think a lot of us are in this boat. Now that cooking is not obligatory, now that corporations are willing to cook for us in so many different ways, we have to find a new reason to do it and, and to, to allow ourselves to really be in the kitchen. And... And so, and for me, what symbolized this impatience was, was chopping onions. I mean, when you talk about the drudgery of cooking, to me, it's chopping onions, and or was. I mean, I've kind of, I've, my spiritual development is taking me to a new plane, as I'll, I'll explain. You know, here was this uh, difficult vegetable that fought back when you cut it and, and, you know, made you cry. It actually produces sulfuric acid and, and tear gas. It's hard to chop onions and not fun, and... Um, so I worked very hard to get my head around that because I realized that it's the basis of so much great food. And cooking in pots, which is after fire, the next major development, it's a, it's a technology, you know, and it, it awaits having fired clay and, and ceramic that you can put over a fire and it doesn't fall apart, holds water and that you can boil in. And we don't invent these pots till about 10,000 years ago, around the time that agriculture is starting. And this allows you to combine vegetables like onions with other things. Whatever aromatic vegetables are available where you live, you now can combine in a pot. But you've got to start by chopping them up. I had a wonderful teacher in the, the water section of the book. Uh, her name is Samin Nosrat. She's an Iranian-American. She's a restaurant chef in Berkeley and a, and a writer. And she uh, had been a student of mine at Berkeley. She was in my class.
0: A nice role reversal. For yes. And practices. now I became her,
1: I became her uh, student. And I, I learned a lot from her. But one of her key lessons is that she told me the secret to cooking well is patience, practice, and presence. These are yoga ideas, basically, and she's she does study yoga, and um, and these are precisely what I lacked. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but I came to understand that when you're in the kitchen, you need to let yourself be in the kitchen and just accept that for the next half hour or, or hour or two hours, this is what you're doing. And when you do that, you can enjoy it in a way that you can't when you're divided against yourself. And um, and I kind of like had this little koan I would repeat to myself, which is, when chopping onions, just chop onions. And that, combined with learning about the science of what was going on with those damn onions when they were fighting me, um, what, you know, I really learned what was going on within the cells of those, those plants to, to repel me and how to overcome that. Because once you, once you understand what's happening, you can beat the, uh, the onion at its own game, uh, pretty much. I I kind of learned to, you know, it's a practice to be in the kitchen. And and it's it, and it's uh, wonderfully therapeutic in a way once you accept that this is what you're doing. And uh I came I can even enjoy chopping onions now. Not every time, but um but many times if my knife is really sharp and uh uh and I'm focused. So what had been drudgery was transformed in me into a real pleasure, and I really do think a lot of our problem with cooking is the attitude we bring to the kitchen, and the challenge we have when anything we need to do is obligate is is no longer obligatory, and we can get out of it. Uh, you know, once upon a time, you cooked because you cooked, and uh, there wasn't corporations weren't hovering outside the door saying, "Hey, come come down here to the fast food you know restaurant or buy this microwavable dinner. We've got you covered." Um, uh, but now that we're in that situation, we have to we have to figure out a new motivation for doing it, and that's part of what I was doing in that chapter. It's like fishing.
0: It is <laughs> like fishing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it does require that kind of quiet and patience and being there, and that's what we we're, we're all bad at, you know. Like the phenomenon of secondary eating, we we insist on doing more than one thing at a time. You know, we think we're great multitaskers. We're not though. You know, you look at the science of multitasking. And when you do two things at once, you do them both poorly. So I think one of the great luxuries of life in an age when we're, we have all these media competing for our attention and all these activities competing for our attention is to do one thing at a time. That is the luxury. And uh, and cooking is best enjoyed when it's approached in that spirit.
0: You talk about the different kind of... Uh... Vegetables, aromatic vegetables, you can add to the onions to create different cultural permutations on mints. And I never thought about that, that each, that different ingredients, all of a sudden you're evoking a, an entire different c-
1: culture. Yeah, well, you know, every culture has its flavor principles. And that these are, this is a term uh, that a, a, a social psychologist, uh, two social psychologists, Paul Rosin and his wife, Elizabeth Rosin, or ex wife, um, wrote a book on flavor principles, and it's a very interesting idea. And it, it basically, when you combine two or three aromatic vegetables at the base of a dish, and these are presumably reflective of what's available to you, onions are, are common across many flavor principles, but whether you combine it with carrot and celery, which marks it as a French dish, it's a mirepoix, or peppers, say, which marks it, and tomatoes, which marks it as a, a Spanish dish, a sofrito, and or Asian mirepoix, which is if you if you combine scallions rather than onions with uh, ginger and garlic and and you can't do this until you do have pots to cook in. You suddenly have the divergence of, of one kind of food into all these cultural streams. And, you know, because cooking over fire, if you close your eyes, it tastes the same wherever you go in the world. It's fire and, you know, maybe the wood's a little different. But now that you're cooking in pots, things become culturally distinct. And you have recognizable flavor principles underlying of grass, a, a great range of... Uh, and the fat you choose has a bearing on this, too. So in, uh, you know, ghee and onions in, uh, in is that the basis of Indian food. And and whether you use butter or oil also marks it. So yeah, all this begins to happen in the pot. When It's really when we discover a culture of, of food and these flavor principles, which, which are a very good guide. Because once you've mastered the flavor principles and combining those things and making either the mirepoix, sofrito, or the tarka, as it's called in, in India, you're, on, you know, you're off and running. And then you can make Indian food or French food or, or Italian or Spanish food. Uh, but it's the pot that allows us to do that
0: and talk about the choice of pots you you said yourself you lacked a cauldron i thought of
1: the disney the witches (laughs) well yeah i mean the cauldron is is you know the original pot and um uh you know i had there are pots i remember from my childhood there was a this turquoise dance casserole that my mom would serve us from uh, and she made stews in and braises and And that pot is is memorable. I mean, it's imprinted Mm -hmm. on me. And uh, she still owns it, actually. And I I saw it recently. And it's like, it really does bring back memories. And there's this idea that this pot sort of symbolizes the family. I mean, you know, the family eats from this pot. It has the history of everything that's been cooked in it. And ceramic pots do build up flavor. and, And, you know, chefs will tell you that, you know, a really old ceramic pot imparts qualities to food that you just can't get any other way. And then there's the sharing that happens. You know, eating from the same pot is, you know, a powerful thing too. I'm convinced, now I have no science to back this up, but I'm really convinced that when people share food, they get on the same emotional page in a way they don't if everybody's eating something different. You know, food and mood are closely linked, and there are chemical compounds in food that, that affect our moods in different ways, and we've only begun to understand this. So when you eat from the same pot, you know, that shared dish is a very powerful thing.
0: It's like you're all consuming the same drug, essentially. Well, in a way, you yeah.
1: are. Yeah. And you are. And it's true, too, when people drink together. You know, that if they're drinking beer, it's a certain culture. If they're drinking wine, it's a certain different culture. And, and food, I think, is the same way. It's more subtle, but, but it's there. You mentioned two words, and it uh, behooves us to
0: distinguish them stew and braise.
1: Yeah. Well, they're both you know, cooking with liquids in pots. In a stew, you're using small pieces of something, and you're completely covering it in liquid. So it's slowly boiling in the liquid, whether that's water or wine or beer or whatever. You can, you can stew with all different kinds of things. A braise is a little different. In a braise, you're only uh, filling the liquid to about halfway up the height of the pieces of meat or whatever you're cooking. So, you're, so part of them are exposed to the air, and part of them are submerged in the liquid. And this has a very interesting effect on them. And they're browned in both cases. You brown the, the meat first. But the, the top of it, and you tend to leave the pieces larger in a braise. You, know, you might do whole chicken legs or a whole pork shoulder or whatever. The top of it gets that beautiful caramelized brown color because it's ro- the top is sort of roasting and the bottom is stewing. And you cook at a very low temperature. Until it's falling apart, and most braise recipes that you see have been sped up. So you'll see if, if a recipe says braise at 325 degrees or 350, don't believe it. That's not a braise. That's cooking way too fast. You really want to do braises at 250 or less. And um, so the top gets this beautiful brown, you know, caramelization, Maillard reaction, and the uh, and the bottom is kind of stewed. And even if you flip it, you get you're getting much more flavor built up in a braise, I think, than a stew. And you have your since you don't have so much liquid, it's concentrating, and by the end you get this beautiful dividend called a sauce. And you can also put a base of vegetables underneath the braise to to uh, cook with with the um, with the meat. So I think it's superior to stews in a lot of ways. I mean, I I like it better. It's it's no harder, and it's it's pretty simple. I mean, it really is. It's you know, do your base of aromatic vegetables, say onions, uh, celery, and and. Uh, carrots uh, in a two-to-one-to-one ratio, more or less, diced really as fine as you can bear to do it, and then put that aside, brown the meat in the pan to build up flavor on the skin, and then put the base of uh, aromatic vegetables back, put the, the meat, if you're doing meat, on top of it, and then fill about uh, halfway up the level of the meat with the uh, with the liquid. And you can use wine, you can use water, you can use stock. I think people don't use water nearly enough. Water wa- water works just fine. There's going to be plenty of flavor. And we I think we default to chicken stock too often, and it makes things taste chickeny, uh, even when you're not having chicken. And then put it in a covered pot in the oven f- until it's soft and falling apart. Which for chicken could be two hours, but for meat could be four or five six hours. You can use a crock pot too and start it in the morning and go off to work and get home and it'll be done. You can't cook it too long and it's also fantastic the next day. Um, So when I make braises, I always make too much. And um, if you're going to go to the trouble of making a braise, you might as well get two or three meals out of it.
0: You're a fan of leftovers, it's a
1: great way to cook. You know, leftovers are the key, I think in a, in a in a time when we 're all so busy and work such long hours leftovers which need a big better word, I think uh they need a whole actually public relations campaign but yeah, I think the key to cooking strategically is making uh doubling up on what you're making so if you are roasting a chicken on a Sunday, do two you know it's no more work uh it's no more pots to clean, and then you have the basis of another meal, you can have tacos or you can make a soup with the second one. And same well, you can with the bread for another refrigerator at seven in the morning. <laughs> that's right. Well, there's that too. But you know, if you start the week with a couple meals that are essentially done mm-hmm. uh, already in your fridge or your freezer, you're in very good shape. And you know, because there are going to be nights where you're only going to have twenty minutes. So I do a lot of this kind of cooking on weekends. You also talk about a
0: uh, word that's only recently come into my sway, which is umami. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Which is an interesting word, an interesting concept. and uh, Well, it's a Japanese word, mm-hmm. and it means deliciousness or savoriness. And it is uh, the Japanese were on to this about 100 years before we were. They, they said that there's a fifth flavor. You know, we, we think of flavor as salt, fat, bitter, and sour. And those are the four big flavors that the tongue can detect. Tastes, basically. I mean, flavor encompasses smell, too. But let's say taste. And they said, no, there's a fifth. And it's called umami. And and we were kind of, in the West, we're kind of skeptical. But we, in fact, about 10 years ago, found the receptors for umami. It is the taste of a protein, basically. It's a response to amino acids, specifically uh, glutamate is, is a very important one. Hence, monosodium glutamate, which is a salt of this amino acid that does remarkable things to food. Um, there are two other amino acids, guanosinate and... In- inosinate and these amino acids, which are which are of course the building blocks of protein, taste good to us and mm-hmm. they give a savory bouillon-y taste to. Uh, it's what it's why we like stock, a long reduced stock. We're breaking down the protein into these amino acids, and they stimulate our tongue and we have receptors in our stomach as well. Probably they prepare the body to digest protein, and that's what they're there for. But uh, a lot of cooking is building up the umami of a dish of when, you're eating, when you're doing savory foods. And there's a lot of ways you can do it. And one is um, you can cheat and put MSG in food. And, and a lot of processed foods do exactly that. They don't call it MSG anymore. They call it hydrolyzed vegetable protein, usually. And there's a couple other ingredient label euphemisms for MSG, which, by the way, there's no reason to think is dangerous. I mean, there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding about MSG. The odd thing about MSG is, if you taste it by itself, it just tastes like salt. But when you combine it with foods, it it kind of italicizes them, gives them more flavor. And um, I love
0: that italicized it, food.
1: It's yeah, it is. It's kind of a it's it's kind of a wonderful um, phenomenon. But the 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 other ways to get it are you can use kombu, uh, dried seaweed, dried kelp, mm-hmm. uh, which has a lot of. Of glutamate on it. Or you could make a, a dashi, which is a Japanese broth that's made with kelp, and there's a recipe for it in the book, kelp, benito flakes, katsuobushi it's called, and a dried shiitake mushroom. And it's very fast, you can make it in like 5 or 10 minutes. And this liquid is really this magic water, because it doesn't taste like much, but anything you dip in it tastes better. And you can then make a dipping sauce, add some soy sauce and a few other things to it, and you have this wonderful ingredient. And you can braise with that, too. So yeah, I I learned a lot about umami, and it's a fascinating um, taste, and it's a a great tool in the kitchen. And you realize everybody's using it without knowing it. The reason you put tomato product of some kind in so many stews and braises, or uh, Parmesan cheese... These have lots of umami in them, uh, or anchovies. That's why you put anchovies in a salad. It's that taste of protein that really enhances the flavor and also the texture of food. One of the mysteries of umami is that um, when you put it in a a soup, the soup will, or a liquid, it will seem thicker, even though it's no more viscous. It will feel thicker. So there's some evidence that, that glutamate uh, affects the, the touch uh, sensors in, on your tongue as well, not just the taste centers, sensors.
0: Boy, that's really interesting. You know, uh, this is also, too, where you talk a little bit about the unspoken ingredient
1: in all recipes, time. Yeah, time. Uh, time is our problem when it comes to <laughs> cooking and so many other things. And most people will tell you, well, I, you know, I'd love to cook, but I don't have time. And you know we do work way too hard, and, you know in this country, and our hours are way too long. There's no question. And you know way back when our um, our labor movement made a, a conscious choice, or may, may may have been an unconscious choice, that we've we've fought for money. Um, we didn't fight for time. And compared to Europe, uh, where the labor movement fought for time, and they have shorter work weeks, and they have very good leave policies. And you know in northern europe you can you can t- you can go to three quarters time for the first eight years of your kid's life or or a couple can share a job or you can share a job with somebody else. There are all these very civilized ways to manage time with the result that people there cook more than we do, and with the further result that they have lower rates of obesity, we know that cultures that still cook at home. Have lower rates of obesity. There's no better predictor for high rates of obesity than industrially prepared food. So, but we all need to make a choice as to how we spend our time. We don't spend it all at work. We do have, you know, five or six hours of leisure um, every day. And then there's sleep, of course. So, how are we spending the time we do have control over? And I think everybody needs to, you know, do their own inventory and decide am I satisfied with the way I'm spending it? we make time for the things we deem important we always did and we always will and we've all found two hours a day to be on the internet now outside of work Um, where did we find those two hours well we took some of it from television i think we should take a little more from television and spend some of it in the kitchen you know we get to the gym because we know it's important to our health we get to the yoga class because it's important for our sanity my argument, to the extent that this book has an argument, is that cooking is as important to your health and as important to your sanity, and it's a really rewarding way to spend a little bit of time. And but I, this is not an argument from, uh, you know, it's not. A, I'm not trying to lecture people into the kitchen. I'm trying to entice them into the kitchen by by reminding people of what a satisfying experience it is. We're in a trap here where we feel that anything that can be done by the market is work, not leisure. So anything you can outsource, we should outsource, and I think that's a very dangerous, a very dangerous path to go down. And, and yet we have to understand that the market is trying to push, push us down that path because there lies lots of profits. You know, the more the more the market can do for you, the more money the market makes. And so we define leisure and work in this very A, B, simplistic way. Work is what you have to do to earn money. Uh, production, And that's production, whatever you produce. And then the rest of your life, you take that money and you you organize it into an occasion for consumption, which is to say, letting someone else do the work. And that's our cult of specialization. And I think it's very destructive, actually. I think we're over-specialized. And the downside of being specialized is you're helpless. You only can do the one thing you can do at work. And OK, you still will watch TV, and you will exercise. But that's because paying someone to do that would be really stupid <laughs> and defeat the point. And creepy. And creepy, <laughs> yes. Yeah, your designated TV viewer. But, but production is enormously satisfying. And taking back control over some forms of production in your life, making things providing for yourself, for your family, by growing a little food, by cooking. These are very rewarding things to do. And, and you could do it in other things. You could decide, well, I'm going to make my own shoes, or I'm going to you know, grow, grow my own food. But the thing we're all ready to do, because we have the means of production, is cook. We all have a kitchen. We have that factory where that could take place. And most of us are letting it go unused
0: one of the things you talk about and i too shared this fear is the fear of making bread i just thought oh my yeah. god i i was I,
1: so intimidated by bread i mean it seemed like the rocket science of cooking you know you needed you needed a scale calibrated in grams <laughs> you know you had to get into the metric thing i just didn't think i could do it and it seemed like it was super precise and that i like things that have a, a Big, fat margin of error. That's why I like gardening. You, you know, it's hard to screw up in the garden compared to carpentry, which, I, you know, I wrote a book about architecture. And, you know, you've got to measure twice, cut once, or you're screwed. And that just didn't have enough play for me. So I thought bread was going to be like carpentry. But it's not, as it turns out. There is a lot of give in making bread. And I got to a point pretty quickly where I, you know, kind of threw out my recipe books and did a lot of it by feel. Um, you understood the texture you were looking for. You acquire a muscle memory for when bread is sufficiently billowy that it's fermented. And uh, it's a very sensual experience. It's not a rational experience. Um, It's deeply sensual. And the way you bake bread, basically, once you've mixed your flour and water in your starter, is uh, essentially just feeling it every 45 minutes or so and turning it and, and, and watching it evolve. And I found it incredibly satisfying. If you work at home, which I do for the most part. It's very easy to weave baking bread into the rhythms of a day. You know, you you're wandering down to the kitchen anyway every 45 minutes or an hour and you can just turn the turn the dough. You don't you don't punch it down and it's not that's not how you really bake good bread cuz your your dough is too wet for that kind of stuff. You just reach your hand under it and turn it once and maybe taste it and smell it and see where you are. To me, there's still nothing more satisfying than, than um, you know, opening the oven and, and seeing what happened, the, the magic of the, the, the leavened bread and, and the color that it takes on and the smells that it fills your house with. You know, I don't do it every day, and, and I certainly buy a lot of bread, but, but making it, you know, I, I guess I make it once, maybe once every two weeks or so, is uh, enormously satisfying and, and not that hard. And I've been very gratified to see people are... are, There is a bread recipe in the book for a whole grain bread. And uh, people have been... Men have been emailing me pictures of their beautiful loaves. And this is is part of the culture of baking. It's a little like barbecue. A lot of self-dramatizing men.
0: One of the things I think that we find in this chapter, too, is the numerous apprentice relationships we have. Uh, Chad and Richard, their relationship and your relationship to Chad. And I think that the way... You create the character arcs in each section in the way all each section contributes to the arc of the book. I think this is really a nicely constructed book because as we read it, we don't necessarily think about that stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the very end, you you've been cooked by this book, yeah. as it were. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it's about the transmission of culture, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what teaching is, of course, and and cooking is is culture, and uh, so how does it get passed down? And cultures get lost along the way. I mean, I think, for example, we lost a culture of cooking with whole grains. Um, We've been trying to get it back with a lot of disastrous heavy loaves baked in, in the 60s and 70s. But we're kind of finding our way again to making beautiful whole grain breads. So the apprentice relationship is really at the heart of cooking. I mean, everybody has learned. You know, they start out as an assistant in the kitchen or they start out in their parents' kitchen. And these techniques... The fact is, they're hard to learn from a book. It's much easier to learn side by side with someone. And I had an advantage that my readers don't have, of course, is that I I would I was side by side with Chad Robertson baking. And I could feel you know the dough when he judged it ready. And then you acquire a muscle memory. And then you know, OK, that's how it's supposed to feel. And now I just know. And so to the extent that you can, if you're interested in mastering any of these things, Invite yourself into the kitchen of someone who's good at it. People are usually happy to teach you. They're flattered, you would ask. And just offer to help. And you can learn to bake bread so much faster spending time with a good baker than you can reading 20 books on the subject. It's sort of like, you know, learning how to diaper a baby. I mean, you know, it's hard to do from the fig one, fig two, fig three. At least for me. Maybe other people can, can work this way. So I, I had this wonderful advantage and then I, I approached these people and I said, will you teach me? Um, but we all have someone in our circle who's very good at making kimchi or baking bread or making a beautiful braise or is a great grill master. And just ask if you can come over one day and when they're doing it and help out. And I think you'll find it will accelerate your, your education dramatically. Um, and, you know, we... Eventually, we you know we should outgrow recipes and and cookbooks and 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 get this wisdom in our hands and uh, in our sense of smell, and we can if we if we have that kind of experience. I I think that's one of the main uh, other effects of
0: reading this book is you start to realize that recipes are, uh, a guidelines. And not it's not chemist. It's not a chemical formula. You? You're not trying to perform. No, a chemistry we get. Experience. I think we
1: get very rigid about recipes. And uh, as as a chef said to me, the recipe is never the recipe. And um and I think what she meant was that there's so much it's like the recipe for writing a sonnet, you know, you know the the, the, the rhyme scheme, but that's like five percent of what goes into making a sonnet. And there's so much else which is touch and smell and and experience and muscle memory and you know, you can learn things from recipes but it's 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 a very it's like architectural blueprint prints compared to the building um, much goes on in the in the process and and the process is really beautiful that said you know i I did publish four recipes in this book and I worked really hard to make them accurate and It's some of the hardest writing I've ever done to really include everything wow you that's do. An interesting no idea. it was <laughs> and and I had more editing I had a recipe tester I hired because I didn't want these recipes to to you know get people into trouble If you're going to put <laughs> you know that many hours into making a a braise it better work so my recipe tester who's uh, you know wonderful uh, very experienced cook she would cook it and say and say well you never mentioned this but you know you have this ingredient but you actually never put it in (laughs) so there was a lot to learn and I haven't had any complaints on the recipes yet so knock on wood (laughs) you have a beautiful fire pit out in front of your house i do yeah yeah. and we do a pig there every now and then and uh um it's been a it's become a a ritual where i I bring my barbecue experience to berkeley and uh invite a bunch of people over and uh, we do we slow roast a pig overnight which is quite a project because you need people to man the fires overnight and uh takes a lot of um uh, a lot of coffee and a lot of (laughs) bourbon (laughs) (laughs) depending on how people like to get through the night Well, I think that that sounds like a fine
0: recipe for reading this book, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe. (laughs) I've been speaking with Michael Pollan. His new book is Cooked. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Oh, thank you very much.